This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to first say Happy New Year, Happy 2021, and Happy Return of Lock and Code. We have been away for about one month, but we're back, and we have something pretty special lined up. Why wait? Our main story today concerns data privacy, and it comes at an opportune moment. Today, January 28th, is Data Privacy Day, which, yes, is a thing. Dreamt up in 2007 by the Council of Europe, the first ever Data Privacy Day actually began as European Data Protection Day. And just two years later, the United States adopted the tradition when the House of Representatives unanimously voted to approve January 28th as National Data Privacy Day. The Senate followed soon after. But let's put names, legislation, and unified Congresses aside. Data Privacy Day today is an annual event in which governments, businesses, nonprofits, and schools can raise awareness about the importance of data privacy. So, informing people about how to protect their personally identifiable information, that could fit into Data Privacy Day. Understanding the online advertising ecosystem and what it knows about you? Definitely good material for Data Privacy Day. Peeling back the curtain on social media data collection and third-party sharing? you know it. But truthfully, the topic of data privacy is enormous, and Data Privacy Day can address tons of other related subtopics. There are conversations around protecting yourself from wrongdoing, like how to protect your sensitive information from hackers. There are discussions about the so-called best messaging app to protect your confidential conversations. Spoiler alert, There is no one-size-fits-all secure messaging app, just the right app for you. And there are valid concerns about biometrics, facial recognition, email scanning. It gets to be a bit too much for the time we have today. So we're going to focus today's Data Privacy Day conversation on your online experience. Your browser, the web, what you leave behind online why the internet even works that way, and what you can do to protect yourself. On today's Lock and Code, we are talking to three data privacy experts. Danny O'Brien, Director of Strategy at the digital rights nonprofit Electronic Frontier Foundation. Marshall Irwin, Chief Security Officer at Mozilla, the developers of the Firefox browser. And Camille Bazbaz, Vice President of Communications at private search engine maker DuckDuckGo. Danny, Marshall, Camille, thank you so much for being on today's show. And to get us started, I'd like each of you to briefly introduce yourselves to our audiences at home so they can have a better understanding of you and your organization's work. As a brief aside to our audiences, I'm going to introduce Danny first here. Danny O'Brien has been an activist and advocate for online speech and privacy for more than 20 years. In his home country of the UK, he fought against repressive anti-encryption law, and he helped found the Open Rights Group, Britain's own digital rights organization. At Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, he serves as the Director of Strategy, supervising the organization's medium and long-term strategy, with an eye on maintaining its global impact and reputation. 
EFF is one of the premier digital rights organizations in the United States, defending user rights through government advocacy, grassroots organizing, impact litigation, and tech tool development. Moving on with our guests, Marshall, can we hear from you? I'm Marshall Irwin, the Chief Security Officer at Mozilla. We make the Firefox browser. We're generally a mission-driven organization. Our parent company is the Mozilla Foundation, which is a nonprofit, really anchors a lot of what we do to advance the Mozilla mission. And on a day-to-day basis, I lead our security teams and then also help to drive a lot of our important privacy initiatives in the Firefox browser that we'll be talking about today. Thank you, Marshall. And Camille, can we hear a little bit about you? Sure. Thanks, David, for having me and uh, inviting TechDeco on this panel and to everyone out there observing, celebrating Data Privacy Day. We salute you. This is a great day to think about data privacy and and what you can do about it. So thanks for checking this out. So as as David said, I'm the VP of communications at DuckDuckGo. You know, DuckDuckGo is an internet privacy company. We are primarily known for private search, which is uh, works just like Google or Bing or Yahoo would, um, with the biggest difference being that we don't collect any personal information or any search history or any tracking of any kind. In addition, we have a a mobile app and a browser extension, which gives additional privacy protections to users like tracker blocking, better encryption, and a bunch of other great features. I think for me and what I work on is really thinking about how to make privacy feel simple. And I think for something that, you know, you can't really touch and feel, how can we make it more visceral? How is this an experience that, you know, people can feel like they're really doing something when they're protecting their privacy, when so many privacy abuses are hidden, happen underneath the surface? Let's get right into it. Because like I said at the top here, the topic of data privacy can be enormous. I wanted to find an entry point for today's conversation. And there is something quite interesting that your organizations have in common, which is that the things you make feel like a response to a data privacy problem. So for DuckDuckGo, right, there's private search, among other things you folks make. And at Mozilla, right, there's the privacy forward browser, Firefox, again, among other products that you make. But again, these sort of feel like responses. So I wanted to ask you one by one at first, why? Why the need for the things you make? What what part of the online environment are you taking a stand against? And so Camille, let's, let's start with you here. Why private search? Which is also to ask, what is unprivate search? And how is DuckDuckGo responding to that? It's a great question because it's an important reminder that the default is not private everywhere for everything. And so we are stepping into a situation where I think despite some logic and and what people would expect, just in general from services, the default here is not private. So we're trying to talk about and advocate for something that logically is something that people really want. And it makes a lot of sense. What we found through our research and other things is that You know, people want privacy, but they feel powerless to do anything about it. They feel like when we did our own research into this, you know, people who care but don't act on privacy, about 30% said they felt like it just wasn't possible to be private online. 22% were concerned doing something would be too complicated to figure out. And then 22% were just not sure how to do it at all. So 
we want to try and make it simple. And when it comes to search, it's sort of a great example of a place where people want privacy, but don't really know what to do to get it, right? So if you think about the search box, you're putting your most private questions, concerns into search. And the data collected from those searches, you know, aren't necessarily used to improve your experience, but for targeting and to make money for advertisers, for Google, for Facebook. And really, at the end of the day, that data is kind of being used against the user for advertising. That's how you get filter bubbles. This is where you end up then, you know, seeing a lot of what we're seeing now in society and even misinformation today is an increased polarization when, you know, the only thing you're being served are more content based on what the algorithm thinks you want to see based on these private searches. And so even something as simple as not collecting any data from people who search with DuckDuckGo and doing no tracking can actually based on the targeting that later happens normally can actually do a lot to protect people's privacy and also just give them a better experience on the internet. Like you said, that's really interesting right there. By default, these things are unprivate. But I wanted to move to Marshall to talk about, again, Firefox. Like I said, Mozilla makes more products than that, but let's focus on Firefox as a what I've called a privacy-forward browser or a privacy-favored browser, right? Building in sort of tools natively into the actual design of Firefox to protect users. But again here, protect users from what? You know, again, what what is Firefox doing and and why is it doing it? I would echo a lot of the points that Camille raised regarding the problems on the web today. In our view, the internet ecosystem and specifically the advertising ecosystem is really broken and fundamentally not respectful to internet users. We see internet users tracked across the web. Their data is collected without their knowledge. And then that data can be used to manipulate them in various ways or can be breached or disclosed in ways that they wouldn't be comfortable with. And the browser has a really important role in protecting people from those problems. People can't reasonably be expected to consent to every third-party tracker that is following them around the web when they visit a website. And they especially can't be expected to consent when they don't even know that that activity is happening. Because this this data collection from third-party tracking happens so silently in the background, they often have no idea. And that is a circumstance where we feel like it's really the obligation of the browser to step in be an active agent on behalf of those users to be what you described as privacy forward. And so over the last few years, we have been really working to turn on a set of privacy protections in the Firefox browser by default that prevent what we call third-party tracking, typically cookie-based tracking, where you visit one website and then you visit another website and there's a tracker embedded on both of those websites that's collecting data about you and building a profile of your activity. So in 2019, we turned on what we call enhanced tracking protection by default in the Firefox browser. It's technology we've been working on for a long time and previously had launched such that users could actually turn it on. But even still, we felt like it was really important to get these protections on by default because again, it's not reasonable to expect when users don't know these threats even occur that they actively intervene to opt into a privacy feature. And so very much what we are working on today, a little shift in our our approach over the last few years is to turn these features on by default so that this third-party tracking 
is cut down so that we can drive the web ecosystem in a healthier direction. Yeah, that sounds great. And it actually dovetails really well into something that is created over at Electronic Frontier Foundation. They have a browser plugin as well. We have one at Malwarebytes called Browser Guard. Uh, it does similar things, also prevents against scams, but more so there's a browser plugin, right? Says, hey, let's let's block tracking across websites. And also EFF has something that was released just last year in November called Cover Your Tracks, which helps you test your browser to see like how leaky it is. So Danny, tell us here, because I think it's important, right? It's not just protecting users from tracking across the web, but it's also letting them know about you know the way they use the web, the way they use the internet. Why is it important to also educate folks, you know, why? What was the impetus for creating both of those products? Well, Cover Your Tracks had a predecessor called Panopticlick that dates back to I think it must have been two thousand and nine, and so you can see that there's been a long path to where we are now in protecting users. And I think one of the reasons why that is is because it's a bit of a, a cat and mouse battle that we have in the really the the environment the ecosystem that we have right now is taking advantage of a few aspects of early browser development that had the consequence of allowing people to be tracked in this way and what browser vendors have been doing is really trying to reel that in and return the browser to what it always should be, which is an agent of the user. And one of the ways that you can move that forward, if you're an individual or um, a nonprofit that represents the public interest as, as EFF is, is, is by making these things visible. So Panopticlick began as a way of essentially describing the problem that we foresaw after dealing with trackers and cookies, which is that browsers can also emit other characteristics. They can emit things that are equivalent of fingerprints. So if you think of this in the way of when you visit a website, that website can ask your browser, hey, just out of general interest, no particular reason, uh, how big is your screen and uh, what fonts do you have? And the browser will tell you because that can be useful in many situations. But next time you go to that website, it can ask you the same questions and deduce by adding up enough data that you're the person who used to visit before. And that means that you can be, be tracked through no fault of, of no one. So Panopticlick was, was our way of showing that this was a problem. And browser vendors and others, you know, got to work on that problem. And what we've been slowly trying to do with this reboot, Cover Your Tracks, is actually turn it from a narrow educational tool, but a conversation between us and browser vendors, I guess you would say, to something that users will be able to actually see how they're being fingerprinted in that way. And that's important, I think, because this is shifting from being a kind of technical attack on privacy that we were worried about potentially happening to, as browsers get much better at dealing with user privacy, turns into an actual living problem. Because the thing about fingerprinting is that you can do it relatively secretly on the back end, right? Because you can pretend to be doing something else that doesn't overtly look like tracking. And that's something that I'm worried that third parties are going to increasingly do because there's so much visibility on third-party trackers, 
all of us are now working on these ways of, of conveniently, effectively, and invisibly blocking them. So we're going to see more subterfuge in this area. What I've heard from all of you right now is that we've learned, like we've learned a lot. And that includes things like, you know, Panopticlick becoming Cover Your Tracks. And that includes Camille, like you were saying, these these stats you're giving us, you know, up to 30% or more, probably more, I'm, I'm misquoting that. People want privacy, but they don't know how to act on it. And Marshall, like you said, people want privacy, but there needs to be a way beyond the model we have where you click, you consent to certain things on every single website that you use, right? And we're learning more. And at the same time, we're seeing from all of these examples that this seems to sort of be the price of the internet. And I think that's a, I think that's an odd thing, right? Because as everyone was saying here, no one did anything wrong. No, no one used their credit card on a sketchy website. No one posted information that they weren't supposed to. These are, these are people using the internet in everyday ways. They're using their browser to engage. They're using their browser to make searches. And yet still, there's a price behind the scenes. And so what I'm asking is, is that simply the way it is? Is that the price of engaging with the internet today? And if so, why? Yeah, so I think to some extent that is the case where you know if you navigate to a particular website, you are choosing to do so and you're disclosing your data to that site. That's the nature of having a first party relationship with whatever service you're, you're gonna use on the web. And so you might be using a great service. So imagine you're using DuckDuckGo's search service, right? Well, in that case, you are disclosing your queries, your data to a party, and that party happens to be very respectful of, of, of you and your data, and that's great. There are plenty of other services that you might choose to engage with <laughs> that are not going to be nearly that respectful. And that's why I think fundamentally, people have to be very mindful of which services they use. And, the, and one of the challenges we have on the web today is the services we use are so frictionless that people aren't mindful enough to think like I should use the privacy preserving search uh, service rather than the less privacy preserving search service. So I think it's that mindfulness is something that we just haven't been trained to do. And like I said, so many of the products that we use today are low friction. They easily get us into that situation where we're compromising our privacy. It's also something that we, at least at, at Firefox in the browser, we have focused very much on this sort of cross-site tracking problem, something that we can change on a really technical level but what we can actually do within the browser technically is somehow get in between users and the direct services that they are choosing to use. And that's where these other factors really become important. Like the things that DuckDuckGo stands for, the regulations that govern how companies are going to use your data, the laws that, that govern how companies are going to use your data. There's an important role for those things to, to play when the browser like Firefox fundamentally can't protect you from some of those things. If I could just add to what Marzo was saying, I super agree and want to say two things about it. One, I think that ideally DuckDuckGo is something that can debunk that myth because surveillance is not a part of our business model, even though we are a search engine. And so for some folks, it's hard to think about that, right? It's like you're a profitable and private and you're like a digital company. Like I thought all these things, the way they made money is like, selling the data. And sure, that is how a lot of the big companies that we're talking about now have done it, but it is not the only thing. And so it shouldn't feel limited to that way. And so the other piece of it is that it's a reflection of the success and how a lot of companies have just been able to frame the public narrative around these things, right? So 
I think a lot of people, one of the reasons why they feel a little powerless is because there's some shame attached to it. Well, I don't, I just, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how this stuff works. I know I should look into it. And so the end of that thought process is that it's the user's fault that they're not more private. It's not the user's fault, right? Like you didn't know these things were happening to you. They were completely hidden. And so being able to understand like, oh, it is not my fault that Facebook's terms and services or, or WhatsApp's, right? This thing that happened two weeks ago where it's essentially new outrage over old privacy abuses. It is not people's fault for using these things and then getting blamed for it. And it's analogous to sometimes I think about sort of the early, early like recycling movement, right? And so how this idea that it's up to everybody to, you know, pick up their trash and recycle their stuff. And it is not the responsibility of a corporation to make sure that their stuff is built responsibly. And, you know, to put that onus on individuals really changes things. And I think part of what we're trying to communicate is it's not anyone's fault. And there are simple things you can do to really reject this trade-off and to make yourself more private. Yeah, I think there's two fronts here. I think, as Marshall mentions, you know, I think regulation does have a role to play here in that there are so many ways, as you said, David, for websites to collect data on you, either in a way that leaves a trace, like the third-party trackers or the sort of invisible tracking that Cover Your Tracks tries to make visible. There's also, I think, this this line of, of frictionlessness, which is that it's easy to fall into these patterns of revealing more about what you're doing than one would normally consent to. And we can't create a technical solution to this whole thing, but we can, in the services that we offer and the browsers that we use, we can build towards making the privacy-friendly option as frictionless as the privacy invasive version. And there is still room to pursue in that. I mean, it's always an open question whether we can really make the two feel as seamless as, as each other, right? You're, you're against, you know, multi-billion dollar business models that produce a lot of good and easy products with this sort of hovering in the background. But there is technical work to be done and we can work on creating a version of the web and a version of the internet that does protect user privacy and moves more of that decision making either to a place where it's comprehensible and it's you know it's it's actual consent or automating it away you know i think one of the things that's sort of fascinating about the bumps that you hit where you have to click the i consent buttons is that from a computing point of view, that's a bug, right? We should have some feature that just clicks on all of those buttons or supported by perhaps some regulation that makes it an open standard to click on those buttons and always to click the, well, it's never no, right? It's always ask me later, but but we, we don't have to stand for that. And fixing that might be a regulation that says actually that doesn't count as consent or it can be something in our browsers, in our computers that is keeping an eye out for that kind of behavior and automating around it. I wanted to go back to something, Camille, you were saying, right, that it's not user's fault for not knowing. And that rings pretty strongly, right? It's not anyone's fault for not knowing these things, particularly because 
I don't know where to find these things. And so I wanted to ask, where, where does someone find this information out? It's a great question. And the point is, you know, that they're not supposed to find it. I think as Danny was saying, right? Like they know how to fix this. <laughs> if it, you know, like if it was a bug, they would fix it. If it was something that they saw a correlation between being able to find a terms of service and have it be understandable and the success of their business, it would be discoverable, very easy and easy to read tomorrow. But that's not reality. And so if people want to go read the terms of services, they can absolutely go do that. But I think, you know, in some ways, it's incumbent on organizations like us to take all the complicated things and make it easy to understand and have it be solutions forward and also really kind of benefit forward, right? So in a way, it's like, I don't need to know how email works, right? Like how it gets in the pipes and to my screen. I need to know what, what's in the email, right? Just what, what, what message are you trying to send? And it's a similar thing here where I think people should be curious and learn about what's happening, of course. But at the end of the day, it, it's, it's, it's up to us to sort of say, this is a far more private experience and it is answering a need that you have and giving you that peace of mind, giving you that sense of security, the sense that I have no idea who's, who's watching my behavior and I can't control it. So I think we have a responsibility to make it simple for consumers to understand and then really solve those problems for them. Yeah, I'll just, that all rings really true to me. So like at Mozilla, we put just a huge amount of effort into being transparent with our practices. It kind of goes back to our code is open source, goes back to that like open source ethos of the company. We really want people to look at the code and understand that it reflects the values of the company. But I think we are also of the view and appreciate that like transparency is a power user feature. <laughs> it's not, we can't expect every user of our product to go look at our code or read our privacy notice, which we've tried really, <laughs> tried really hard to write well. What we want the vast number of our users to know and understand is that they're going to be protected by default when they use our browser. And if they go then read our privacy notice, that's great too. I very much enjoy that realization of transparency as a power user feature, right? There is a sphere out there where we think, of course, people are going to read this. <laughs> Just imagine the thinking, of course, people are going to read our privacy policy. It's well-written, you know, like that's not true for so many places, for so many folks and understandably so. I wanted to jump forward a little bit and talk about something we'd already touched on that there are a lot of ways to prevent this, a lot of ways to take a stand against this ecosystem, or just a lot of ways to protect your privacy online. And what I'm particularly curious about is whether there's a sort of interoperability with many of the tools we've already discussed today. We've talked about browser plugins, we've talked about private search, we've talked about a private browser, but there's a lot of terminology out there that I think kind of overlaps. And I think a lot of folks don't know which is left, which is right, which works, which doesn't. And so I wanted to get in there. And I think one of the, the easier places to enter here is, okay, so there's private search, there's a privacy forward browser, and then there's private modes on individual browsers, right? There's incognito mode, there's private mode. Can we help clarify, you know, what are the differences between these things, these terms, and and also clarify, you know, is it a good practice? Is it a bad practice to use a private search on a privacy forward browser? Something like that. 
Yeah, so maybe I'll get, just give a little bit of history on private mode or what we call private browsing mode. It's interesting to think back about what the risk was that we were trying to solve when, when I think private browsing mode was built, which was a risk that someone would actually be in your house, get a hold of your laptop and look to see what you were browsing. <laughs> and so the, the hypothetical being, imagine you have someone that you're going to propose to and you've been browsing for engagement rings. Well, you don't want that person to get a hold of your laptop and see, oh, this person's shopping for engagement rings. And so private browsing mode originally was designed so that when you would shut down your browsing session, it would clear your cookies and clear your browsing history so that no one could go in and find out that you were looking at engagement rings. Now, over time, some browsers have augmented that with additional anti-tracking techniques. Like Mozilla in 2014, actually, in private browsing mode, which you could opt into, we actually turned on anti-tracking there. Now, again, it wasn't on by default in the browser from the outset, but you, could, you would be protected by tracking when you went into private browsing mode. Other browsers still are more wedded to that original vision of, again, protecting you from someone who's in your house with your laptop. And Mozilla has certainly evolved away from that. First, like I said, in private browsing itself, when we augmented the, the tooling there, and then more generally now that you're protected by default in the browser. I think one of the aspects of this is that, you know, privacy is something, certainly when you're thinking about browsing online, privacy isn't just some sort of state you're in, right? You're not in like this sort of private mode yourself personally. You're protecting your information from somebody else, right? There's There are other actors in this equation. And when we, actually, when we're teaching about online privacy in, in perhaps the most sort of serious and in your face kind of aspects, which is when we're talking to journalists who might have some genuine risk of state surveillance or targeted surveillance on them. We always sort of walk people through and say, well, you know, what are you trying to protect and who are you trying to protect it from? And I think that what Marshall says about privacy mode, you know, really points that out because the the technical somewhat militaristic term is threat model here. But the idea there is you're protecting yourself from someone else who might have access to your computer when you're not there, which isn't actually as time has gone on and people spend less time at cyber cafes and so forth, right? That threat model sort of isn't quite as relevant as perhaps it, it, it used to be. And so actually kind of, I find people able to get their heads around this pretty easily. And once they do, I think it not only lets them understand a bit better where the problem areas are, right? Is it the big search engine that's tracking you? Are you worried about like the, the FBI or so forth? It puts a point on the question. And it also, I think, kind of empowers people because when people start thinking about it in that way, then they begin to recognize that there are tools to hand that they can use. But again, to go back to what we've all been talking about, the biggest challenge is in the defaults, right? The biggest challenge is, you know, what is your status at the very beginning of this conversation? Because it's a little weird to be talking about threat models and who you're worried about when you're already kind of naked and visible to everybody the moment you, you enter cyberspace, right? So I think there's work to be done on the defaults and the educational part of it is more about teaching people about the how they can ask more detailed questions if they're if they're encouraged to do so. Setting aside everything about 
private modes, right? What we used to think we needed private modes for, the, the engagement ring example, setting aside privacy favored browsers, private search, a lot of private terms. I wanted to steer the conversation here into something different, uh, VPNs. Because I think about a year ago, I started seeing ads for VPNs on like every single YouTube video that I watched. And every single ad said, these do a million things. These these are the solution to everything you've ever dreamt of. You know, every nightmare you've had, the VPN figures it out. And so I wanted to figure out what is the benefit of the VPN and, and how does it integrate in this conversation? Can I use them with any browser that I want? Does it increase privacy? If so, what sphere of privacy is it increasing, right? What what realm are we actually targeting here? So that that's the bigger question there is how do VPNs fit into this conversation of online privacy? Well, I think that that again, this goes back to this idea of like, well, what who are you trying to protect your privacy from? And VPNs are very good at protecting your privacy from the people, the institutions, the organizations that usually get to see your, your traffic pretty early on, right? So if you are worried about someone being able to spy on your local network, or if you're worried about your internet service provider spying on your network, or if you're worried about... Um, the nation that you're you're working from spying on that network or blocking that network is often the practical reason for using VPNs because what they do is they take your data and then put it in a little tunnel or protected tunnel to somewhere else on the internet and then your traffic pops out of that tunnel there and goes to your final destination. They have a, a definite range of, of protections they offer. What they don't do is protect you from what we've been talking about, which is the people at the other end of that tunnel. If you're using a VPN to go to Google, say, or Facebook, there's one part of that equation, there was one element that, that those companies no longer get to see, which is your IP address, which gives you some basic information about where you are in the world. But they see pretty much everything else, unless the VPN itself is kind of messing with your data as you go through it. And that raises the other issue with VPNs, which is the VPN company itself can see all your traffic. Now, one of the big projects the EFF and others have been working on for the last decade or so is to actually end-to-end -end encrypt a lot of the traffic that, between your computer and other sites. And that actually protects you from your ISP and it protects you from your VPN as well. But it's definitely not at 100% right now. And so to a certain extent, a VPN is a great service to let you pick who you would like to see your data. But then that in some ways sort of just starts the question again, which is why are you trusting this VPN instead of your, your local ISP? So those are the open questions that you should be asking a VPN provider after you've seen their ads. Quickly here, yeah. Is there a difference, a meaningful difference between a VPN who can see your information, like you said, and a VPN who stores that information. I see so much talk about, you know, VPNs that are like, we're a no log company, right? Is there a discernible difference there? You know, are they seeing it no matter what, but there's a meaningful decision in being like, well, we're not going to keep it in case we get requested. Uh, what What's happening there? 
there is a meaningful difference. And again, this goes back to the threat model, which is what a VPN is saying there is that if somebody wants to, somebody external, law enforcement wants to find out where you've been in the past, they could ask your ISP if you weren't using a VPN. If you are using a VPN, they would have to go to the VPN company and therefore they can they can offer to say you know we won't keep logs the challenge with that always is how do you know they're telling the truth and i don't wish to like you know cast dispersions but it's actually somewhat hard two things one it's weirdly hard to not keep logs we don't keep logs of the ff and you know we have to spend a lot of time trying to work out how to do that and the second part of it is if what you're worried about is law enforcement coming at you if you're worried about a third party coming at you, they have other ways of doing this. And they could put a, an order on the VPN company to preserve logs, right? And the VPN company would have to fight that in the court. And we would be very happy to support VPN companies making that kind of effort. But your local friendly law enforcement officer can put a lot of pressure on you. And it's a tricky one to, to navigate if you hadn't actually planned for law enforcement to come and knock on your door all along. Yeah, you know, if I just add one thing to what, to what Daniel was saying, I think it's underscoring the point that privacy isn't just for people who have something to hide, right? So in these cases, where Danny's talking about people abroad who, you know, if let's say they're searching for, for something that is seen as threatening to that government, and, you know, that thing could be, gender rights, could be about democracy, could be about just access to information. There's nothing wrong with that. And seeking privacy for that reason should be a totally normal thing. And it's sort of why the default is so important here and just sort of changing this idea that, oh, if I want to be private, it must be because I'm searching for something absolutely terrible and embarrassing. In my, like, not at all. You know, it's it, it's really like a question of freedom. And, you know, privacy can be freedom in that way. Wrapping up here, I wanted to ask all of you, because we've had a lot of information that we've gone through, for a single takeaway. A single takeaway that you think is the most important thing for folks to do if they want to protect their privacy online. What can they do starting today, even? And Marshall, let's start with you. Yeah, so I'm actually, I apologize, I'm going to give you two. We've been talking a lot about third-party tracking. I think it's really critical that people use browsers that block third-party tracking by default. Obviously, I want people to use Firefox. But we aren't the only browser that blocks that by default. And I think people should vote with their feet and use one of those browsers that you know is going to protect you from, from, that, uh, from the, the surveillance economy. The other thing I want to point out, we offer a desktop browser. We don't have a big foothold on a big mobile platform. Apple recently announced what I think are really critical changes that have the potential to change the mobile ecosystem in a similar way that I think are really healthy by turning off by default its advertising identifiers and then requiring users to opt into those. It's a really important initiative. I'm really impressed by that decision they've made. They've gotten a lot of pushback for it. <laughs> so I'd encourage everyone now to go into their settings on their Apple devices and turn off that ad ID to signal their support for that initiative. And we'll see if uh, Apple gets this uh, across the finish line soon. So actually turn on that feature. Danny, how about you? What's the one takeaway you might give folks at home? That's a tricky one. I mean, I think if you're 
if you're already listening to this podcast, I think in some ways you're kind of, you're already at the, the power level user. I mean, I think, again, like our organization is kind of weird because we deal not only with consumer privacy, but also protecting the most vulnerable and targeted people in society. So on that level, and given that the, the listeners here are probably a little bit more sophisticated, I'd encourage people actually to download and play around with the Tor browser. It's based off Firefox. It gives you an extra level of anonymity in protecting your IP address, which is something that you might want to use on an occasional basis. And it's always kind of fascinating to see what the world looks like through a really heavily protective browser. And one of the reasons why I think that's useful, not only for people who need like very high levels of protection, but once you see, start viewing websites in that way, you can see the ones that are broken in that view of, of the web, right? And I think this is the unspoken element of everything we've been talking about so far. You know, as browser manufacturers, as organizations like us, as privacy protective search engines try and build out what they're doing, things break. And sometimes things break deliberately because the people who are privacy invasive kind of want them to break under more privacy protective environments. And I like to show people what the world is through Tor because I think, it, you know, DuckDuckGo works just fine. Tor, right? Other things work great. Firefox as part of the Tor browser. You get to see what that looks like with all the settings turned to max. And I think that, that being able to see that and then being able to turn back to these companies and these services that fall apart when you just ask for basic levels of privacy really gives you a different view on what they're doing. Yeah, thank you. And Camille, how about you? Again, the one takeaway you would give folks at home. Yeah, hard to do just one, even though the obvious answer is to use DuckDuckGo. <laughs> so as Danny correctly said, I'm sure everybody listening to this is probably advanced and has taken some steps. And so I would definitely say if, if you're not using DuckDuckGo to download this on your mobile device, use this as your browser and to download our extension, which is available for, for any other browser on Firefox, as you mentioned, Tor, et cetera. The other thing I would just say is, I think to, we, we've heard both Marshall and Danny talk about the frictionless nature of data collection. And I think for folks listening, to think about being that friction in this endless pursuit of your personal data. And, what that means is, you know, not just using these products that we've all talked about, but encouraging friends and family to do it, to, you know, ask your friends, what browser are they using to, to let them know that there are options, that it doesn't have to be whatever your phone or computer came with or what you've, you've been using for many years that you feel like you can't switch from. In basically every case, we've thought of solutions for all that. <laughs> so a lot of the things you might be worried about aren't there. And so I think to be that friction and, and, and to get people excited about that and to let them know that it's not just something that they're doing for them, but they're doing to have a better internet for everybody, I think is, is a really powerful idea. Um, and it's something that could help continue the spread of, of, of people taking their privacy back. 
Everyone, thank you so much for joining our show. I hope our listeners act on some of the advice offered in today's conversation. And I particularly want to zero in on something that Camille said, to be the friction. Let's quickly jump through time here. After the show, Camille let me know that those words, be the friction, actually originate in the work of Shoshana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Shoshana Zuboff deserves all the credit here for her seminal work, which chronicles how certain global tech companies have created such an enormous influence on our lives, often at the price of our privacy. Okay, back to our show. Marshall, Danny, Camille, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in a little more than two weeks when we discuss Malwarebytes' State of Malware Report, our annual look at the threats, attack models, infections, detections, and cybercrime trends that hit businesses and consumers during the year prior.